0: Well, we're turning to our Bible reading now, which you'll find in James chapter 5. We're drawing towards the end of this powerful little book written by James, the brother of Jesus, Uh, a letter written to some of the very earliest Christians who were suffering for their faith in Jesus. And a repeated trend is that of the oppression of the poor by the rich and the powerful. Poor Christians were finding themselves dragged off into court, having their wages withheld by their bosses. This was one of the pressures that the church in James' day faced, and they were not responding well to these challenges. They were falling out with each other. They were even emulating their wealthy oppressors and not caring for the poor in their community, welcoming people based on how important they were by the world's standards which meant that the wealthy got the best seats in the house and the poor sat on the floor somewhere. Well, James has given this church a series of reminders, things that we've found to be vital reminders for us as well. And Andrew's going to read for us now this powerful passage in James 5. Let's see what God's people need to be reminded of
1: here. Good morning. Now listen, you rich people, Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you fail to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because because the Lord's coming is near. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned, amen.
0: Thank you. Psalm 73 was written by someone called Asaph, and in that psalm he tells the story of a period of disillusionment that he had gone through, a time when he'd struggled, really struggled to make sense of the world around him. Listen to how he describes his struggle. He says, "'I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind.' What Asaph is saying there is he experienced what most of us have experienced at some point. He looks on and he sees those who are morally wicked. They live their lives with no reference to God, no care for God. They rebel against Him at every turn. They do not hold back from fulfilling whatever urges they have, and they seem to be fine. They seem to have it so much easier than I do those who threaten others to make their way in this world, they seem to be the ones who are comfortable. And it made him wonder, why do I bother? Why bother? Why continue to dedicate myself to God? This is what was in his heart. He says in that psalm, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Sure, we can relate at some level, can't we? We can see the success, the power, the adulation that follows those who reject God, who reject the values of the gospel, and we can be envious. Maybe I'd be happier if I just gave up on this Christianity stuff. Well, Asa's story is one that recounts why he changed his mind. How he could break from this envy and disillusionment. Listen carefully to what he says. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. He says, then I discerned, I understood their end. When Asaph lifted his perspective away from the immediate, away from the short-term success and comfort that the wicked enjoyed, and saw where it was all going, it was that that transformed his thinking. That is what reminded him of why trusting God is not only possible in difficult times, that it is, without exception, always the best and only right thing to do. And this is what James does for us in James chapter 5. The Christians that James writes to were being oppressed. They too were inclined to look on with envy at the wealthy and the powerful, tempted to give up on following Jesus even, because it would make life so much easier. Well, James says to them, look beyond the here and now. He says, look at where it's all heading and remember, Jesus is coming. That's his message to them. And that is the perspective that everyone needs if they're going to have a healthy view of the world. And so in the first six verses of chapter 5, James delivers some very powerful words of rebuke, doesn't he? Here he delivers what we might call God's perspective. We look on at at the scene and we kind of weigh up the things that we see. Well, James here, he delivers God's perspective. And I suppose one of the questions we need to ask is, who is James speaking to? He opens up here, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Is James talking to members of the church here? is he addressing those who are not Christians here? There's some debate about this, but I think if you, if you read through this letter of James, uh, what you will see littered throughout it is the term brothers, or if you read me the NIV, brothers and sisters. Brothers, beloved brothers, brothers and sisters. All throughout this letter, you'll find that's how he refers to these Christians. There is brothers and sisters. But you note in that opening paragraph in chapter 5, it doesn't at any point, he doesn't refer to brothers. He doesn't use that term here. In fact, it's not until you come down to verse 7 that James picks up that language again. He says, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And so, um, I believe that that James is, what he's doing here is he's taking on the role of like that of the Old Testament prophets. So, for example, if you were to read the book of Isaiah and you come to somewhere around about chapter 13, there's a block of 10 chapters where Isaiah delivers these oracles to different nations, the nations that surrounded Israel. So, you would find there there's an oracle to Assyria, to Philistia, to Moab, to Damascus, to Egypt, and and, and several others. And in these oracles, he pronounces to these nations that they are going to be judged by the Lord. In all of them, it's a bleak picture. The Lord is coming, and you will be judged. Now, here's the funny thing. Isaiah never went to any of those nations to deliver his message. So, he spoke to them, but he never actually went to them to give the message. He was probably standing in Jerusalem when he declared these things. The point is this, even though the message was addressed to Israel's enemies, it was given so that Israel would hear what the future was for their enemies and so be changed. And I think this is exactly what James does in chapter 5 here. He addresses the wicked with this message of judgment. In particular, it's the, the rich who are oppressing the poor. But it's done so that these Christians might hear how God is disposed towards those who are wicked and who oppress the poor. He's giving them God's perspective. This is James's prophetic voice. And this is where God's perspective really cuts through our often superficial analysis of the situation because here it's not a bright future for these rich that James has in view. Uh, Come weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. James says that in God's presence, there is clear evidence that will condemn these wicked men to eternal misery let's look at these pieces of evidence together. The first piece of evidence is corroded wealth. That's the first piece of evidence, corroded wealth. These guys, they have, they have laid up their treasures, and to look on, they are a picture of security. They're sitting on a pile of gold and silver that would mean that they never need to worry about the future. I mean, that would be our perspective. What's God's perspective here? Verse 2 your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Gold and silver don't corrode. That's part of their value. But in God's sight, this wealth, which should have been put to good use to glorify God, instead has been hoarded for self-gratification, for luxury. It has, in effect, been left to rot, and it will condemn them. The same is said for their grand clothing. The garments are moth-eaten. It's as if to say you've gathered these things, these things which, which may convince other people of your grandeur, and yet they've been left to sit there. And in God's sight, they are just moth-eaten, worthless things. The second piece of evidence is the way that these men have accumulated their wealth. Look at this in verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you the oppression of their own workers, withholding their wages. Sorry, I I don't have the money to hand just now, but I will get it to you. Don't worry. And it never comes. Earlier in the letter, James had reminded these Christians that it was these kind of rich men who were oppressing them, who were dragging them into court. And indeed, we see here in chapter 5 that the wealthy people who are in James's crosshairs at the moment, look at what they've done. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And I don't think that's to say that the righteous person just accepts injustice with a shrug of the shoulders. I don't think that's what he's saying. But he's saying that from the rich person's perspective, it's easy to trample over and to kill these weaklings because they can't resist. There's nothing they can do about it. They have no power. The picture here is, is if you can can imagine it, is, is as if the Christian here has been dragged off to the debtor's prison and condemned there because his wealthy employer defrauded him out of his wages. And though it may all pass unnoticed by most, in verse 4, James says that the cries of the oppressed rise up and ring in God's ears. And in fact, even the fraudulently obtained money in your pocket is crying out to God against you. God hears everything. And he's not just described as God here. He's described at the end of verse 4 as the Lord of hosts. That is the Lord who is at the head of the heavenly armies, ready to come against you. He will bring miseries to them. And the language here is is shocking, isn't it? Their flesh will be eaten as fire. They're almost pictured as... as, uh, as cattle in the field who think that they're really living life to the max by fattening themselves up as much as they can, not realizing that all they're doing is fattening themselves up for the slaughter. And so in this context, James is saying, look, Christians, you are disillusioned, you're downcast, you're downtrodden by the wicked behavior of these guys, but do not for a minute look upon them with envy Don't think that you need to ever emulate them. Don't think that you ever need to take revenge on them, because this is how they already stand before God. God hears it all. God sees it all. God will act. The Lord of hosts will move, and He'll bring justice. And that's why James can say in verse 7 to these Christians, "'Be patient, therefore, brothers.'" until the coming of the Lord. You can keep going, Christian, because you know that the Lord Jesus is coming. That's the day when all of this will be put right, every last bit. And you don't need me to tell you that this is a sorrowful world that we're in. And James is not saying, I can't emphasize this enough, James is not saying that where we see injustice in our world, we just say, oh, well, the Lord will fix it. We don't do that. In fact, He's saying the opposite. I'm going to make that point in a moment. He's saying quite the opposite. But He is saying that as believers in Jesus, we know that we're not counting on getting everything sorted in this life. We don't need to fear that injustice will reign forever. And while that is a comforting thing, there is a sense in which, actually it's a deeply troubling thing, This is the repeated testimony of the Bible, that it is appointed to every one of us on this planet, for however long or short we're here, we die once and then the judgment. That's the pattern. That's the repeated testimony of the Bible. There is a God in heaven. He created us. To Him we are accountable. And we will all stand before Him one day and give an account for the life that we have lived. And right now, you might be running through however many decades you've been here and thinking, well, I would definitely want to highlight that, definitely want to mention that, and I'll gloss over that. Let me save you the mathematics. You and I fall way short. We stand before the bar of judgment, and we will fall. We're lawbreakers. There's not one of us who have lived up to even the first of the commandments, to have no other gods beside Him. We have lived for other things. We have lived for money, for our own exaltation, and that on its own is evidence enough to condemn us. And the truth is, Jesus is coming, coming to judge the world. That should terrify us. But you see, the reason why James can say to these people, remember, Jesus is coming, and it not fill them with terror is because of who Jesus is to them. He is more than a judge. He is the Savior. He is the Savior who has come to rescue us from God's judgment. And as we look to the cross where Jesus died, it's there that God's judgment is poured out, the judgment that every one of us deserves, and yet there is the perfect Son of God enduring that judgment on behalf of all who will come and trust in Him. And that's why James can say, remember Jesus is coming, and for it actually to thrill us, when by rights it should terrify us. Jesus is more than a judge, He's a Savior. And so James says that if you have this perspective, if you have God's perspective on all of this horribleness that goes on in the world around us, what will the response be? Well, first of all, from verse seven, be patient, wait for the precious fruit. He says, be patient and wait for the precious fruit. James says it would be really foolish, wouldn't it, for a farmer to go to all his effort in the springtime, preparing the ground, planting the seed, going off to bed, getting up in the morning, and falling into despair because he hasn't got a harvest yet. It would be crazy for that farmer to say, after I've worked so hard, I've, I've put all the man hours in I've invested so much, and here I am a day later and no harvest. Now is not the time to be despairing about that. The rains still have to come. That's what James says. The rains have to come. The seasons have to, have to run their course. And when it's harvest season, then you will reap. Then you'll receive the precious fruit of the earth. That's the language of verse 7. He waits for the precious fruit of the earth. And so for Christians, we're waiting for Jesus to come because that is when the precious fruit that He's promised will fully become ours. That's when we'll finally be free from sin and death and sickness and mourning that is when every tear that we have shed in sorrow at this world will be dried by God Himself. That is the great and glorious day for all who belong to Jesus. They have their sins forgiven, and this amazing work that Jesus began in us is finally complete, made like Christ. So, James is saying, don't be tempted to give up just because you're enduring harvest during hardship, he says, be patient, wait for the precious fruit. Second, he says, stand firm, trust in the Lord's compassion and mercy. Stand firm, trust in the Lord's compassion and mercy. He uses the word steadfast a couple of times in the translation I have. And in doing so, he points us to examples of those who've gone before. The prophets who spoke on behalf of the Lord, these irritating men who would not be silenced, not even by kings. They would speak the word of the Lord as they received it. They kept going, they were steadfast, they stood firm. And James says, you know, we look back on these guys, we read of these guys, and we recognize they're blessed verse 11, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. We know, don't we? And yet somehow when it comes to our steadfastness, we make excuses. Take the extreme example, says James in verse 11, of of Job, who lost everything, his wealth, his health, his family. And yet in the midst of that, with all of his questions, he could say, even if God slays me, yet I will trust him. And the story of Job ends with him being abundantly blessed, restored wealth. He's given more family. The the fact of of trials and hardship, that that doesn't change who God is. That doesn't change his commitment to you. It doesn't change his, his attributes of compassion and mercy towards us. Way back in chapter one of this letter, James reminded these Christians that we must stand firm because we understand the promise that we've been given. He said, verse 12 of chapter one Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Be patient, wait for the precious fruit. Stand firm, trusting in the Lord's compassion and mercy. And last of all, and maybe most surprising of all, he says, guard your tongue. Guard your tongue. The pressure can be too much to bear. And there are several signs throughout this letter that the Christians to whom James writes were compromising in their response to the pressure they were under. So you see there's a a warning in verse 9 of our chapter. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And a warning in verse 12. Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or any other oath, but let let your yes be yes and your no be no. So that you may not fall under condemnation. James has several times, and particularly we saw this in chapter three, he, he, he's convinced, rightly, that the tongue, what we say, how we speak, reveals what is in our hearts. So he says, Be careful. Grumbling against one another? And the, the, the challenge in verse 12 is, is to remain thoroughly straightforward. Don't compromise your integrity. Don't commit yourself to great oaths in order to get yourself out of a sticky situation. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. And in fact, there is a general rule, isn't there, that where people embellish their speech by saying, no, honestly, no, truthfully, I'm not joking, that usually they're being less than. And this is the thing with swearing by heaven or earth or swearing on your mother's grave or whatever it is. The Christian is to be much more straightforward, straightforward in how they speak. They don't need a special trumpet for when they tell the truth, because they are people of the truth, committed to truth, and who don't want to compromise with the truth, even if it means being in a tight spot. I'm going to confess to you that this passage in James 5 has troubled me for about two weeks. James is telling Christians to be like prophets. I mean, he gives them that example, doesn't he? verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brother, take the prophets who spoke. And he himself is speaking with this prophetic voice, Be like the prophets in your day who stand firm in the face of opposition. What bold words. I certainly feel as though the church in general in our society today has pretty much lost its prophetic voice. But I want you to bear in mind that the prophetic voice that James uses here is being used to comfort God's people. Why do we hesitate to declare God's perspective on some of the rampant wickedness that exists in our society? We could talk about how it would be received out there, but James's prophetic voice is for how it's received in here. And I wonder if it's because we're actually not that bothered about it. I mean, how many of us are so troubled by the injustices that people have to live with that we need this reminder, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming? Or are we doing just fine without it? There was an example this week, wasn't there? 39 postmasters and postmistresses had their convictions for theft overturned they had suffered a grievous injustice some of them went to prison most of them had their lives ruined now what if what if this overturning of the injustice had never come how would we live with that james would say remember jesus is coming The horrors of our world, we need to be convinced of this, the horrors of our world will be more than matched by the certainty of God's justice that is coming. The Nazi war criminal who takes his own life before facing justice does not escape justice. Indeed, though we might say it, he does not take the coward's way out because he comes into the presence of the living Christ to whose ears the cry of every victim has come. And I want to say, brothers and sisters, we ought to have more of a posture of grief about what is happening even in Scotland today. Because the spiritual and therefore moral landscape is utterly bleak. And yet I confess, I so often don't think twice about some of the wickedness that goes on every day. And where would I even start to declare that to you today? As a parent, I think, first of all, of children. And though it may be so silent that we don't notice, our beloved National Health Service in Scotland kills more than 13,000 babies every year in their mother's wombs, the vast majority of them perfectly healthy. And this is something that rings and screams in God's ears. Little ones made in the image of God, they cry out to their Creator, even if we do not hear them. And it is our job to speak up for those most vulnerable people in our society and to have the steadfastness of the prophets in doing so because here we have the worst form of human selfishness. The souls of those babies are safe with Him, praise God. But the wickedness that would slay them in the womb, and the nation that would celebrate this as a great freedom, will not escape God's full and perfect justice. And do you know why I can say that? Because remember, Jesus is coming. Exploitation of children in terms of human trafficking and using them for sexual gratification is something that is growing, yes, here in Bonnie Scotland. The sexualization of children at younger and younger ages, even in our school system, is damaging our children, yes, here in Bonnie Scotland. And how angry that should make us. So much so, we should be moved to act, to speak. But praise God we remember, Jesus is coming, and justice will be served. And you don't need me to tell you, this is just a flavor. This is just a flavor of what we live with. But the prophetic cry is one that does more than just condemn. It's one that calls to repentance. Even if we've been complicit in some of these sins, there is forgiveness in Christ. Praise God. Yes, weep and howl for the offense that this causes in the sight of God, but let that drive us to Christ who receives the sinner, the roughest and darkest sinner, with open arms. He is the one who comes to bring judgment against all wickedness, but to bring the precious fruit of forgiveness to those who belong to him. Amen.